Welcome to the Speak Up Talk Radio Network. I am Pat Rulo. Today, I'm happy to share a recent Firebird Book Award-winning author with you. She is M.K. Lever, and her winning book is titled Surviving the Second Tier. She is a Texas author and a Ph.D. student at the University of Texas at Austin Moody College of Communication, studying NCAA Discourse. Having served as a former Division I runner, she ran track and cross-country for Western Kentucky University. She now is a freelance writer for LRT Sports and a sports consultant with a mission to aid future college athletes in navigating the NCAA. The book Surviving the Second Tier is her debut novel, and I'm looking forward to finding out more, so welcome to the network, MK. Thank you so much for having me, Pat. I appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure, and congratulations on winning the Firebird Book Award. Thank you. So before we dig into your book, maybe give us a little bit more of your background, because I know that has so much to do with the writing of your book. So let's just get a feel for who you are and your past. Yeah, so like you said, um, I'm a former Division One athlete. Um, sports have always been such a huge part of my life, um, and I like to... I like to watch sports. I like to watch, uh, like any kind of sports pop culture. I'm a big fan of like Friday Night Lights and, and sports movies and books and all kinds of stuff. And something that I really noticed with a lot of that medium and just the sports industry in general is that it's very, it's very male dominated. And so as a woman who's in the sports industry as a freelancer, um, and I'm also an, an editor now for, um, a sports based company as well. Um, I found that the, the male-dominated um, aspect of the college sports industry makes it hard to break in for women. It makes it hard for us to have really good stories around female athletes, and it's just hard to access women-driven media in the sports industry. Um, and so it's always been a dream of mine to write a novel about sports. I grew up reading. I've always loved to read and write. Um, and so I wanted to write a book with a female athlete who is front and center, who wasn't just in a supporting role or who wasn't just a supporting character. Um, and so I, in my novel, I combine my experiences as a college athlete with some of my research into NCAA policy and the problems that college athletes face in the NCAA to produce a book that I really haven't seen in the sports industry um, and something that I've always wanted to read. As you were beginning to write this, did you ever think of doing a full-out expose, or was it always the fictionalized truth version in a novel form? Yeah, it was more of a fictionalized truth version. That's a really good way to put it, um, because I study policy, and I love reading policy books, but it's kind of boring for most people. So I would find as I was like describing my research to people, their eyes would sort of glaze over. They'd get bored with all the policy speak. And so I was really thinking, you know, I need a better way to package my research and communicate about it in a way that's really engaging and interesting because the the systemic issues that college athletes do face in the NCAA are, are significant and important. And I think that there's something that really needs to uh, um, be a general awareness about. Um, and so I'm very passionate about the issues. And I just decided to start telling people the NCAA is a dystopia when they started asking about my research. And that metaphor really caught on with people. It opened the door to a lot of interesting conversations. And so it was really a vehicle for me to talk about my research in a really engaging way. Um, and, and it was a way that's more accessible to than academic research. Um, because with, with, you know, how jargon heavy a lot of articles are and, and they, 
massive paywalls to, uh, to academic journals. It can be really difficult to access research. And so I was, I really just wanted to translate mine into a medium that was a lot more accessible and engaging. And I would really get people talking about it. Oh, it's a very smart route to go. In fact, I just interviewed another Firebird winner, Patricia Levy, and she wrote a book called Reinvention, and she coined the term social fiction. So this book is all about how to write fiction that deals with these some of these social issues. And so as you were speaking, you kind of were parroting exactly what she was saying while you take these topics that... People need to be aware of, but it's so dry that how do you how do you muddle through that? So to put that into a fictionalized form, obviously, is the way to go. I love that. I'll need to get in touch with her. Yes, she's fabulous. She absolutely is. When, when we get done, I'll send I'll send both of you a little introduction because I think you'll you'll be very very interested in the work she she does in this, mm-hmm, in yeah. this genre. Yeah, yeah. Give us a peek then inside the book. Yeah, so my book is a futuristic dystopian novel about the very real issues that college athletes face in the modern-day NCAA. Um, it takes place in the future, at at which point um, a bunch of athletic departments in the United States have spent a ton of money. They're at, on the verge of going bankrupt, and so the governing body of college sports steps in and says, we're going to downsize the collegiate model into a single sport model, and that single sport is going to be fighting because it's cheap, it's flashy, it's glamorous, it has all the appeal of, of big money college sports like football, and we're going to save a lot of money in the process while staging the industry. Um, and so my novel follows uh, a, a team of fighters who are in their they're, they're getting into their postseason, which is a very stressful time of the year. They're um, navigating some stressful injuries and relationship dynamics and and abusive coaching dynamics that are very common in the NCAA as well. Um, and it really, I really wanted it to show the human side of college athletes as well because I think when we see athletes in the media so much, we see them um, really we see them monetized and we see them in terms of of numbers. So we see like so and so made you know, X million dollars or signed a contract for X million dollars or scored this many points in in the game last week. And we don't really see a lot of stories about athletes as people. And so I wanted to not only talk about the issues, but also talk about the effects that they have on athletes and how athletes navigate the systems and and the different levels of of controls and the barriers that they face when they try to resist. We don't get that human aspect from athletes. And so I don't think folks know what kind of issues go on within this industry that are not visible to the viewers. So maybe just highlight some of those so we get an idea of what you're talking about. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, the big ones that I see in the college sports industry especially is just a, a lack of of agency for college athletes. There's a lot of um, power imbalance between coaches and athletes. Um, coaches have a lot of control over um, things like athletic scholarships. And so athletes are really sort of at the mercy of their coaches because they don't want to lose that scholarship. They don't want to lose a spot on their team. Athletes often stay silent about political issues out of fear of retribution from athletic departments or, or coaches or even donors. Like a big, a big, um, topic of conversa- uh, conversation a few years ago in Texas was the controversy over the eyes of Texas, the, uh, the fight song at UT, um, because it has 
a lot of racial undertones that are, are, are super negative in a historic context. And, you know, the athletes went to um, UT. They, they wrote a petition. They said, like, we don't want to do the fight song anymore. And immediately received a ton of backlash from donors who were threatening to keep them out of jobs, you know, when they graduate. Um, and so athletes, they face a lot of different controls at different levels of college sports. Um, another issue I see a lot is, is health and safety standards are not great in college sports. The NCAA doesn't have any real binding health and safety standards that are enforceable. They have a lot of guidelines and things like for concussion protocols and stuff like that. Um, but athletes, and I was one of these athletes, oftentimes they'll graduate with injuries um, that they have to pay for out of pocket or just deal with. And then there are long-term injuries like concussions and CPE that the NCAA and universities really don't cover at all. Because some universities will cover college athletes for a few years after they graduate insurance-wise. Um, but healthcare in college sports is not nearly as good as a lot of people think that it is. Um, and so these are just a few, you know, the big issues that stick out to me in my experiences and my research and, and what I wrote about in Surviving the Second Tier is really these systemic problems that athletes really struggle to resist or, or to do anything about because they don't have a lot of power and agency to do so. But I'm, I'm guessing there's conversation among the athletes about this. Yes, and this was something, you know, COVID obviously had a lot of negatives, but one of the positives of the pandemic, if we can even frame it that way, um, was that it brought a lot of attention to the issues that college athletes face in sports media. Um, so there were athletes from different conferences in the NCAA who used social media over the course of the pandemic to advocate for better COVID safety protocols, um, more workplace rights, um, name, image, and likeness rights, because those were still up in the air at the time. So athletes are doing everything that they can within their power, um, but they're often restrained to advocating on social media. And, and if they don't get buy-in from their universities and from their coaches, these movements don't usually get very far. So it's, it's always encouraging for me to see athletes speaking out, but it's also a bit disheartening because I know that there's only so much that athletes can do on social media and through those channels. Mm -hmm. What about mainstream media? Is that any help to them? I think mainstream media is really good at getting the issues out there um, at certain issues. Um, like, so, for example, you know, the mainstream media was all over name, image, and likeness for the past couple of years because that was something that was very widely agreed upon that college athletes deserve the right to have sponsorships or be social media influencers. I do see on other issues that are more controversial, mainstream media tends to shy away from them, um, one of those being um, workplace rights for college athletes, you know, things like like the ability to unionize and to collectively bargain to advocate for, you know, things like better health care, improved health and safety standards, um, and things like that. I, I wish the mainstream media would be a little bit more consistent with that. We, as viewers, are, we don't know about this organizational abuse that apparently comes from the top down. I always thought, oh my gosh, a coach would, after all, be a person who is supposed to care about his team. Why do they buy into this? Well, you know, a lot of that goes back to what I was talking about with health and safety standards. I, I, you know, I lump abusive coaching under that umbrella. And a big issue with NCAA policy that I see is that there aren't any real rules, at least enforceable rules, against abusive coaching. So, um, you know, coach, coaches can get away with pushing their athletes too far or coercing them to train through injuries or threatening to pull scholarships. 
and they're not violating any NCAA rules. And a, a huge turning point in my scholarship um, that really made me look critically at NCAA policy was actually the Larry Nassar scandal back in 2018 when, um, and he, he's not a coach, but still in a similar position of power, um, where he was, you know, sexually abusing all of these Michigan state athletes. And I remember a headline just made my stomach drop because it read, um, Michigan state university cleared of all wrongdoing in, in, in Larry Nasser scandal. Um, and I remember I was reading through a policy book at the time for an assignment of mine. And I was like, yeah, of course he's cleared because there aren't any rules against abusing athletes like that in any NCAA policy books that I was reading. And so I was combing through them and I was looking, I was looking for any kind of rule that, that would punish that. And I couldn't find any. And, and to this day, there aren't any rules that ban abusive athletes in the NCAA. Um, so that's, you know, a huge problem and a huge contributing factor um, to to coaches engaging in that kind of conduct is because they can. There's, not, there's nothing really stopping them from doing that. I don't know what it would take for athletes to band together and, and create so much noise that they would say, hey, we're not going to play until we have some of these things in writing that, that we agree to. A contract. Yeah, and I touch on that in my book because, you know, if, especially, you know, with March Madness, that's where the NCAA earns the vast majority of its revenue is during the, the, the national basketball um, tournaments in the NCAA. And it's always been like a dream of mine for the athletes to band together and say, hey, we're not going to play in this tournament unless the NCAA shapes up. Yep. This almost happened a couple years ago. There was a group of athletes that um, they basically wrote a statement saying, like, this is what we want the NCAA to do. But what was missing from it was the ultimatum of if the NCAA doesn't do this, then we're not going to play. Mm -hmm. um, and I can't really fault athletes for that, you know, for the reasons that I've been talking about today, because they really do risk a lot in doing that. They can risk their scholarship. They can risk their spot on the team. If they have potential to go pro, they can risk their draft status or, or moving down in the draft. And so um, there are a lot of constraints on athletes and reasons that they don't organize yeah. as well, um, which is really where unionization and, and collective bargaining come in. You know, if college athletes had employee rights, it would give them a lot more leeway to make the rules themselves and to bargain for the things that they need as workers. Oh, for sure. Yeah, there's not much leverage if, you, if you're going to go out there and say, hey, if we don't get what we want, we're not going to play. Okay, so you lose your scholarship. I mean, nobody wants to lose their scholarship. That's such a horrible thing to dangle over somebody's head. I, I really do look at the system of college sports, and it's something that looks very glamorous and very yes. fun on the outside. Mm -hmm. And I think this is something that sports media really does, um, is, is they really make college sports look Fun. Um, and as a as a you know as a former D1 athlete myself, there there are pockets of joy and pockets of fun in being a high level athlete. When you know when you are super in shape and have great teammates and are, are are accomplishing goals and doing great things that you're really striving to do, there's something really fun and joyful in that. But 90% of being a college athlete is really, really, really hard work. Um, and we only see on television you know that 10% of the time where athletes are, are performing well and having fun. The pressure is still really high, obviously, when you're performing on national television. But, you know, when you do well on that stage, it's super, super fun. Um, and so I wanted to really complicate that image that the majority of, of sports fans get of, oh, these college athletes are having fun. 
all the time. They're living these dream lives. They have these full scholarships that are guaranteed for four years, which is not usually true. Um, and so I wanted to complicate all of those things and just give people something different to think about when they're watching college sports in real life. Absolutely. Gets a dose of reality here. Yeah. Now, there are positives, as you mentioned, that come from it, just the friendship, the relationships that these athletes build with one another. But surely what you're speaking about overshadows all of that. Oh, yeah, 100%. Um, and, you know, not all college athletes have negative experiences in the NCAA, and I would never want to speak for all athletes. But I think it's important to talk about, you know, the not-so-positive sides of college sports. And even, you know, within athletes, to athlete relationships, things can get really complicated there too, because when a coach is using a scholarship as leverage against you, something that they can do is say, okay, Katie, if you don't run this time next year, I'm giving your scholarship to your teammate. Like I had coaches tell me that before. And so it really trains you to view your teammates as threats um, to your scholarship, which is, it's just such a, a complex mindset to be in where you have a real friendship and a real bond with these people, but you're also, and you're reliant on them for your team success, but you're also in constant competition with them. It's a very, it can be a very toxic environment when coaches manipulate that. Oh, sure. And they're well aware of that, just that level of fear. I'm glad that you have and able to get this out there and expose it. What kind of feedback have you gotten from your readers? It's been mostly positive, which is always, you know, really great as a writer. I'm like, oh, yes, I love positive feedback because um, it is a debut. You know, I've never written fiction before. Um, and so a lot of it was, was trial and error and figuring out, like, how the best way to communicate this was or when I was getting too technical or slipping into academic speak in my writing. Um, but, you know, I've had some athletes read it and say that, you know, they see their experiences in it, which is it, it, it's encouraging to me as a writer, but it's disheartening to me as an advocate because I I don't want people to relate to this. You know, I don't want for people to like I don't want to have to write these kinds of things where I'm calling out power imbalances and, and structural issues and injustices. It's like I wish that. Um, you know, the system weren't the way that it was. And I also want to, you know, clarify that I don't believe that all college coaches are bad. Mm-hmm. Um, I've had good and bad experiences with coaches at the collegiate level and even at the high school level. Um, and, you know, college coaches are under a lot of stress as well, um, because unless you're like a Nick Saban or a Dabo Sweeney and you're, you're you know, you're like a nationally competitive uh, football coach who's earning millions of dollars, College coaches are under similar constraints as their athletes where they're very easily replaceable. They're constantly trying to move upward, um, and they have a lot of stress on themselves as well. That's never an excuse to, you know, abuse an athlete or abuse your power, but I think it's important to acknowledge that the system isn't really designed for most coaches either. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that whole trickle-down effect where basically money speaks. Yes, it's all about money. <laughs> so what do you view uh, that would be in store for the future of college athletics? Where where do you see it going? I believe the next step is going to definitely be more advocating for workplace rights for college athletes. Um, I'm writing my dissertation right now on paternalism in college sports and how so much college sports policy and even name, image, and likeness laws essentially tell athletes what to do. They don't really give athletes the agency to advocate for themselves. Um, and instead, they infantilize athletes by treating them like kids and saying, this is how 
you need to act. This is what you can and cannot do. So instead of erecting these parameters around college athletes with policy, I would really love to see more NCAA policy and more state and federal laws expanding rights for athletes to advocate for themselves and tell people this is what we as adults and workers want. And just having the ability to bargain with people uh, like as their employers, that would be a, a really big structural change in college sports for the better. Have you ever thought of taking this to a next step where you actually start some grassroots organization with legal counsel and, and really try to affect um, the changes that you're speaking about in your book? I, I wish I, I wish I had the bandwidth to start an organization myself. <laughs> um, I, I ultimately, I, I ultimately really would love to start some kind of a nonprofit organization that, um, for one thing, that just helps college athletes after college sports with like insurance costs and things like that. Um, I'm, and I'm a part of an athletic uh, advocacy organization right now as well. So I'm trying to do as much as I can with the influence that I have. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also, you know, with my scholarship and my um, my uh, creative writing and my freelance writing, I try to advocate, you know, through all of my avenues to the best of my ability. But one of these days, yeah, that would be a really good long-term goal. Yeah, yeah I could see with your passion and your knowledge and experience just to I don't know, maybe just spearhead it and then throw it in someone else's direction that could maybe run with it because, uh, yeah, this can't die on the vine. This is something that needs to be brought out and actually action taken. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and that's something, you know, with name, image, and likeness, and, and that's been a great benefit for college athletes, but it's also sort of a basic right. Um, you know, like no other college student has a bunch of restraints on what they can or cannot do monetarily. Mm-hmm. Um, and name, image, and likeness really generated a ton of interest for people. And now that college athletes have name, image, and likeness rights, I'm really seeing a lot of that passion from people die out. And so, and that's disheartening to me because, you know, the work here isn't done. Um, and so what I really would like my book to do is to continue to draw attention to these issues, continue to, to stroke those flames, and to keep people engaged and aware of these issues and pushing for change. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, there's no other student or group of students. You don't have like musicians or or artists or anyone else in a college situation, although I guess they're not, they're not front and center and they're not money makers. So maybe that's why. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There, there are a lot of different defenses that like the NCAA has given for years about NIL and, and all of that. One of them. And it, so this actually went to the Supreme court in, I believe it was 2021 that summer. Um, but there was a, a case against the NCAA that went all the way to the Supreme Court. One of the big arguments that the NCAA made in that case is that college sports are successful because the athletes are not paid. And it was actually Brett Kavanaugh who really just slammed that argument because he, he said basically what you're saying. He's like, no other industry in the United States operates off of the principle that the product is worthy because the workers are unpaid. Like, you're not going to go to a restaurant and be like, oh, the chefs are unpaid and that's why the food is so good. Mm-hmm. So a lot of these arguments have been, you know, picked apart for, for decades. The name, image, and likeness was a really long time coming. Um, so I'm hoping that workplace rights and, and just better protections for college athletes are next. Oh, my. Thank you. Thank you for what you do. This is so important.
Um, and I hope others pick yeah, up. Yeah, thank you for taking the time today. Yeah, I hope others pick up on this and, and start at least start conversations, you know, because I don't think many, <laughs> many viewers, fans, they're not aware. Not yeah, aware. I think... I think, you know, a lot of people watch sports as an escape, um, which is one of the reasons why when athletes get political, um, like with Colin Kaepernick and, and anthem protests and things like that, a lot of people really came down on him hard because they view athletes as entertainers. Like they'll watch a football game to escape the real world, to not think about, um, you know, just their own personal problems or societal problems. They really view sports as entertainment. Um, and so a lot of fans don't really engage with, with issues that affect athletes, whether it's at the college level or the professional level, because professional athletes have their own sets of problems as well. Um, even though they're making millions of dollars, that doesn't exempt them from having problems. Um, and, and so when athletes get political and when they speak up, a lot of people really take that personally and they don't take it very well. Um, and so this was sort of my way of getting a little bit political with, with the NCAA and, and putting my research in a different medium to just like what you were saying to at least start conversations and, and make people aware. Right. What about parents of college athletes? Do they know? Do they care? Do they have a voice? Yeah. So I, I come from, I'm a third generation college athlete. My grandpa and my mom were both and my dad also were, were all Division One athletes. Um, and so, you know, you would think going into the recruiting process when I was a high schooler that we would have a ton of information at our disposal and that we would know exactly what we were doing. But the industry changes so often that a lot of the times parents just don't know what to do when, they're, when their children are getting recruited. Um, a lot of the times, you know, coaches and universities will, will play like salesperson. They'll put on a good face. They'll show the athlete the best parts of the university, um, and and the team will kind of play along and and you know because we want to get good athletes on our teams and not on other teams in the conference, for example. Um, and so a lot of recruiting is is essentially a sales pitch, um, and and a lot of parents don't know that it can be very very challenging to navigate the recruiting process when you don't know what's in store or if people are being fully honest with you. So a lot of parents aren't really aware of the issues in the NCAA either. And and that was another point of my book is that I really wanted it to be educational. I wanted to give people a more full image of what college sports are like on the inside, you know, from an insider's perspective um, so that they could know what questions to ask and, and just what they're getting into when their children get recruited. Oh my, you should do a podcast. <laughs> I would love, I've, I've been told that a lot and I would absolutely love to do a podcast. Maybe when I graduate, I have a lot going on right now, but, <laughs> but maybe in the future. <laughs> yeah, a lot of topics and you know, you do a 30 minute podcast every other week and hit and highlight all of these issues. And so your audience could be, could be broader and you can, you can actually reach out to some of these high school families and parents who are, you know, have athletes that are going into college to know what to look out for. Really, really important. Yeah, maybe do like a mailbag kind of thing and have people, you know, send me their questions or concerns. I think that's a good idea. Yeah, lots of lots of thoughts. So talk about this later. All right, my friend, what's next? Any other books that you're working on? So right now I'm I'm really focused on getting my dissertation done uh-huh. and getting my PhD and, you know, like applying for academic jobs. I would absolutely love to write more books. That's, you know, my ultimate goal is to establish myself better as a creative writer in addition to 
doing academic work and freelancing because I, I I love to write in all kinds of different mediums. They, you know, different styles of writing touch me in different ways. And so I, I love creative writing because it's a great way to um, make sense of the world, to, you know, to uh, call out uncomfortable truths, which is one of the things I love about dystopias is that they are great vehicles for uncomfortable truths. Mm-hmm. Um, I love academic writing because it's very concise and to the point. And then freelancing is great because I can keep up with the news cycle. So mm-hmm. I just, I want to keep writing. I'm not exactly sure where I'm going to go with it, but I know that wherever I land career wise, I'm going to definitely continue writing. Oh, I love all of this. So much hope for the future. Alrighty. Anything we missed today that you wanted to highlight? Um, I mean, I think we covered just about everything. Um, I can't, yeah, I can't really think of, of much more. I would just say, you know, like I mentioned earlier, I, I don't ever intend to speak for all college athletes. This is just, you know, a microcosm of, of different issues that I've studied, that I've experienced. Um, and I really just hope that athletes see themselves in this book and that it encourages them to um, just be more vocal about the things that matter to them and, and for them to understand that they're not just athletes. They're so much more than their sport, and, and their athleticism is a great part of them, but it's not all of them. Right, right. To feel free to speak up. All right. Well, if you would share contact information where folks can find you, get a copy of your book, anywhere you want to lead us. Yeah, so I'm pretty active on social media. Um, I'm on Twitter and Instagram, and my handle is Lever Fever, just my last name, followed by um, the word fever. Um, and my book is on Amazon. If you uh, search Surviving the Second Tier in the search bar, um, you'll find the link to it. It's prime eligible. Um, and then my email address is also on the back of the book. So if anyone, you know, has any questions they'd like me to answer or, or you know, just wants to reach out to me, feel free to, to do that. It's a uh, Katie Lever at utexas.edu. I'd be happy to talk to anybody there. All right. Excellent. So we're talking with Katie Lever. Her pen name is MK Lever. And the book is titled Surviving the Second Tier. And after this conversation today, everybody needs to get a copy to understand what's going on and share with those who you think would benefit most. I so appreciate you taking the time to share this with us today for writing this book. And I'm just proud of you and for you for all the work you're doing. And I'm going to keep an eye on you. And when you're ready to podcast, let me know. (laughs) Thank you, Pat. I appreciate that a lot.